Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with Lisa Cordes, who heads the United Way of Central Ohio. Google announced this week that it's building two more data centers in the area. There's already one in New Albany. Now it's building one just north of Scioto Downs and another on the west side of Lancaster. We'll have comments from Governor Mike DeWine from a news conference this week making that announcement. That's in about 20 minutes. Then courtesy of Tracy Townsend at our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From cable news chaos to 2024 presidential candidates, 10 TV's Kevin Landers is in studio to talk about presidential politics. And starting with a connection, how one group of neighbors in Westerville is showing support to Ukraine. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Alan Shaw, CEO of Norfolk Southern, about the East Palestine derailment and train safety. That's coming up in about 50 minutes. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Lisa Cordes, who is the president and CEO of the United Way of Central Ohio. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me this morning. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about the United Way. I know we all, in general, kind of know what it is, but but you're the best person to tell us what it is. (laughs) Well, great. Thank you for asking about that. Uh, That's a good place to start. United Way continues to be the largest privately funded charity in the world. So we are a global um, organization, and in our country, there are about 1,000 United Ways in in, the United States, and serving um, many communities uh, with a focus of mobilizing the community to care for its most vulnerable uh, residents. Uh, So we raise money and activate volunteers uh, to solve our community's most pressing problems. So here in Central Ohio, how many agencies do you work with? In Central Ohio, um, which is primarily Franklin County, we fund 91 organizations. Wow, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. And you are out with a new report that's uh, pretty striking and kind of alarming about the plight of Ohioans. Right. The framework is called United for Alice, and Alice is an acronym that stands for Asset Limited income-constrained, employed. So Alice represents the many people in our country, in our local community, that um, earn are working but don't earn enough to be able to pay for the basic costs of living, given what it, what it takes to live in, in Franklin County. Um, but they don't qualify for any public benefits. So they're really... Um, stuck, right? So they can't, they don't earn enough to to um, be able to afford the cost of living in Central Ohio, and they don't they earn too much to qualify for any public supports. And it's a growing population of people that really struggle to make ends meet. So a lot of times, when you look at uh, a city or a county to figure out what kind of shape they're in, basically you might look at the poverty rate. But that doesn't reflect what's really going on with uh, the needs and how they're able to meet those needs. Right. And so I'm reminded, you know, as this report came out, that the federal poverty level was established uh, in our country in the 1950s and hasn't changed. <laughs> and it's it's one formula across the community. It doesn't matter the cost of living. So you could be in rural Wyoming or in New York City. It's the same. And what Alice does is for every county in the country – you, there's a, they have a survival budget calculator where you can plug in, if you live in Licking County, for example, or Newark, you can plug in your information in terms of your 
how much you earn, and it'll tell you what is there a gap between what you earn and what it costs to live in in Newark, as an example. So, you know, we're really urging uh, policymakers, legislators, and others to understand that the federal poverty level does not tell the full story, and the Alice population just continues to grow. And it's really made up of uh, working people that make our country run, right? Like, um, you know, we think about um, waitresses and uh, people that run restaurants and cashiers and nursing assistants and, um, you know, cooks. They're they're the engine, you know, of our community, and uh, they can't make their ends meet given what they're paid. You know, it's so interesting when you say that the federal poverty guidelines haven't been properly updated. And, you know, I think back to when I was in high school, which was a long time ago. Uh, minimum wage when I got out of high school was $2.30 an hour. And right. I just talked to somebody from Policy Matters Ohio the other day who said in 1968, which was before I was out of high school, but the effective minimum wage in 1968 was $14 an hour. Wow. And now I think it's I think seven twenty-five an hour. Is the- right. <laughs> it is unbelievable. So clearly wages have not kept up. Right with our growing expenses of the cost of living in our community, we did. You know, there was some uptick in in, in hourly rates, wages during the pandemic, um, and hardship kinds of financial incentives that were put in place. But it was it's just not enough to make up the difference. Talking with Lisa Cordes, she's the president and CEO of the United Way of Central Ohio. One of the statistics, and your report is great because you show, uh, you know, down to the county level and there's uh, kind of interactive maps to click on and put your mouse over. And one that struck me was when you talk about the difference between poverty and, and the Alice rate, Delaware County, you know, poverty rate's only 4%, but the Alice rate there is 17%. That's more than mm-hmm. one out of six. Right. And that's the, um, right, the most affluent county in our state. Right. And for Ohio, across Ohio, 38 percent of our of our state is Alice or living below the federal poverty level. That's significant that it's more than one third of us in the state. And uh, stark differences, too, when it comes to uh, the makeup of families, Uh, families with uh, head of household being single female with kids. 73% 73% are below the Alice level. Mm-hmm. Uh, with males, it's 49%. But if, if it's a married couple with kids, it's only 12%. Right, right. You know, it, we are in a community and in a time where it really takes two incomes to support or to survive as a family. And the family unit is just kind of falling apart these days, too, which isn't helping, mm-hmm. right? No, that's right. You know, I was really struck by the reminder of the federal poverty level. So for a family of four in our community, the federal poverty level would say you need to earn $26,500 to be able to afford the cost of living. Alice says for a family of four in Franklin County, in the modern economy, you need to earn $63,684 for a family of four. That is a huge difference that policymakers need to understand. One of the things that makes it even more alarming is, you know, we've gone through, uh, granted, things are getting tougher now, but the last 10, 15 years 
have been, by historical standards, pretty good times. We're looking at an unemployment rate of 3.5%. I mean, it just doesn't get much better than that. Right, right. And our, you know, our companies and our businesses are, are desperate for employees. Right. With this report, then, where do you go going forward with this? How are you getting the information out? Who are you targeting the information to and that kind of thing? Well, right now, as the, uh, the, the state is working on its new budget, um, we are taking this data to inform legislators as they look at what, for example, so the budget's gone through the House and things were cut out of that that were put in place. Well, you know, let's just say one example is an increase to support child care, which was cut out. So we're taking this information now and, and, and talking with legislators in the Senate about what, how this is going to impact Alice if certain things aren't approved in the budget to support them in the coming two years. <clears throat> so that that's immediate. And then United for Alice is um, housed out of the United Way of Northern New Jersey. And they now have 27 states this week that released a report. So it's a movement that's getting um, a lot of traction around. This is, this is, this is our country's problem. And, for us to be able to advocate around what does it mean to be able to, to survive and then thrive in our community. Um, it's, uh, I think we're, we will have, we're building a stronger and stronger case around changes for the federal poverty level. Talking with Lisa Cordes, president and CEO of United Way of Central Ohio. Has uh, the pandemic and, and just all the current situations that are going on with uh, the economy, you know, the higher interest rates and all that, is it causing any shift in the United Way of Central Ohio, your focus on which agencies get higher priorities and that type, that type of thing? Well, yes, I will tell you that we have a new impact um, business line, and that is around stabilizing families so that children will be more successful in school. And we're really focused on the importance of third grade reading. Mm -hmm. And we had in, in Franklin County, we had too many young people who were not reading proficient at the end of third grade before the pandemic. That's the greatest predictor you'll graduate from high school. If there's just a clear correlation between passing the reading proficiency um, test at the end of third grade and graduating from high school. So during the pandemic, the, the, the scores plummeted. So one example is, you know, in Columbus City Schools uh, in 21, only 29% of third graders were reading proficient and only 14% of black children. The racial disparities are significant. So we are laser focused on Working with schools and districts and families, our role as United Way is really stabilizing families so that the children can be more successful in school, that they can get to school, that attendance is is high. Uh, so we're we're focused on and meeting the basic needs. We we hear a lot when working with districts that children are hungry, so we have food strategies. So it's about meeting those basic needs of families. Um, but it's it's essential because we think about 10 years from now, right, if, this, if only 20-some percent are reading proficient, what does that mean 10 years from now around what unemployment, crime, and those kinds of homelessness? I think the impacts of the pandemic are going to be with us for a long time.
Yeah, it's amazing. When you look at a nine-year-old kid, which I guess would be a third grader, their uh, kindergarten year and first grade year were completely thrown off course by this pandemic. Right, right. And they were they had challenges before the pandemic, right, given that the living Alice, you know, so there's lots of stressors in too many of our households. Um, it's, it's, it's alarming, but, and it, it's not unique to Columbus. And it's happening across our country and, and particularly in urban areas where education impacts are significant. And unfortunately, you know, I, I've been uh, seeing a lot of stories lately and, and conversations about how even as kids get older and become uh, young adults, that because of uh, social media and, and just being able to do so much online now without actually interacting with people, that there's just a lot of social anxiety and just kind of checking out from society and just kind of uh, living more isolated lives. You know, it's interesting that um, we also are seeing it in the school districts. Uh, there's a real challenge with attendance right now. It's significant. And um, that's a, a direct correlation to the pandemic. Kind of a change of you know, ritual, you know, the diligence that it takes to get to school every day. Um, so they're just seeing higher than ever absentee rate. One of the things on the other end, too, that could uh, factor into this uh, Alice rating that you have is with seniors. You know, we've, we're going through property reappraisals in, in Franklin County right now and likely to see an uptick in property taxes soon. And then also vaccines going forward for the pandemic. You know, the most vulnerable population, there seems to be a question as to whether or not vaccines will be covered in the future for them. Right. And we, we're seeing, you know, other benefits around SNAP, uh, you know, access to food. There are a number of benefits that are being reduced or coming to a close. One of them is we have, you know, really been able to prevent evictions during this time uh, because there's been monies from the stimulus packages, the pandemic packages to support families so that they aren't able, they aren't, they have monies to prevent eviction. That money's going to go away. And so last year, 2022, in Franklin County, we had the highest eviction rates ever in our country. Now, they weren't set out. It's different. One, you know, you get the eviction notice, but being set out, there was less than 1,000 people actually set out because of stimulus monies. But what's going to happen when those monies run out? Right. Lisa Cordes, she's the president and CEO of United Way of Central Ohio. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, I just... Uh, really appreciate uh, the opportunity to share this information, and I hope people will come to our our website at um, United Way of Central Ohio, liveunitedcbus.org, uh, to learn more about Alice in the news section. And the United Way of Northern New Jersey has lots of information about Alice where you can look at other states you might be interested in, or for anyone in Ohio, you can pull up your county and uh, learn things probably you weren't aware of before. I really recommend that people go to that because there's just a, a ton of information and it's, uh, it's pretty user-friendly. I think it, it, you've, done, you've done a great job with it. Great. Lisa Cordes, again with the United Way of Central Ohio. She's the president and CEO. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. When a child is diagnosed with cancer, the last thing parents should have to worry about is how to pay for it. This is a St. Jude moment. Calvin got diagnosed June 10th of 2018. He has rhabdomyer sarcoma, a soft tissue cancer. One oncologist told us if it was my son, we'd go to St. Jude. And within 24 hours, we were on a plane headed here. 
it's it's hard to fathom what St. Jude has done for us. They've really given our family hope for the donors out there. It's just amazing. I never thought we would be in this place. And it's people like you that help us and help St. Jude provide for a family like ours. St. Jude is like the gold at the end of a rainbow. And we are so grateful and thankful for everything. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. Science is not an opinion. People come before pipelines. It's not too late to act on climate. No one is above the law. At Earth Justice, we hold these beliefs to be self-evident. As a national legal nonprofit fighting for your right to a healthy environment, we are 150-plus lawyers representing clients free of charge because now, more than ever, the Earth needs a good lawyer. No one fights more cases on the environment than Earth Justice. And we win because these are fights we cannot lose. We win for scientists so they can serve at the EPA. We win at the Supreme Court because clean water is for everyone. We win against fossil fuel plants so communities can breathe freely. If you believe what we believe, then help us fight the good fight and help us keep winning by going to earthjustice.org today. That's earthjustice.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Earlier this week, Google made an announcement that by the time these two projects are done, it'll total more than $2 billion that Google has invested in Ohio. They already have a data center in New Albany. Now they're building one just north of Scioto Downs on the south side of Columbus and another one on the west side of Lancaster. Here's Governor Mike DeWine talking about the investments from this week's news conference. This is just about three and a half minutes. Google's announcement today is more good news for the state of Ohio. You know, you look at this and some things are obvious. Uh, a lot more construction, a lot more construction jobs. Uh, we're very, very grateful for that. Uh, more jobs there, more contractors' jobs. Um, and then having Google uh, as a partner in the community uh, means a lot. Mark was talking about what Google has done in regard to really ed- education. And we're very, very grateful uh, for that. I know they just made an investment uh, in Columbus City Schools, and we're grateful, grateful for that. Um, but this also, uh, it's about all of these things, but it also sends, I think, a signal. Uh, Mark talked about three locations, data centers that are close proximity right here in Ohio. Uh, I think that says a signal about where where Ohio is is going. Uh, we have a lot of things going for us uh, in in the state of Ohio. Uh, some are some are uh, by, by nature the water abundance of water that we have our location in Ohio, uh, but some are things that we have worked on. Uh, we've worked on, frankly, with the legislature for a, a number of years. Uh, and not just in in this administration, but a, but a good business climate uh, is is certainly very very important. Um, the most important thing going forward, and the most important thing today, uh, is people. 
Um, Woody Hayes, our former Ohio State coach, the late Woody Hayes, said you win with people. And I think Google's announcement today is a recognition that we have the people in the state of Ohio. And it's a continuing process, and we have to continue to, to, to work on that. And the truth is that when you put smart people together and educated people together, guess what happens? They attract more smart people and educated people. And we are getting that critical mass uh, here in the state of Ohio that is, is so very, very, very important. Uh, the budget that we have presented to the General Assembly, uh, and we've had great support uh, with the General Assembly, uh, the budget we have presented uh, is really all about people. It is an investment in people. It is another um, significant investment uh, in our community colleges. It's another investment uh, in our high schools and career tech and investment in, in higher ed as well. So we're going to continue to invest uh, in our people because we know that that really is what makes the difference. And we're so happy uh, with this announcement. Sends a great, great signal. Uh, three locations, data centers. Um, it tells us something about what you think we're doing in Ohio. And we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to invest in our people. Um, this state has a great, great, great future. Uh, we're on the roll, but we have to continue to, to do that. These things don't happen by themselves. They happen by what, what we do, and we're going to continue to do that. We appreciate the partnership with you. Governor Mike DeWine at a news conference where Google announced two new data centers in central Ohio. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Thank you so much for joining us here on Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Knowing your rights as a voter is critical in every election, primary, special, general. The League of Women Voters, which is a nonpartisan organization, is urging all voters to brush up on their rights and the state's new rules for voting in Ohio. Among the changes, voters must now present a photo ID when they cast ballots in person, either during early voting or on Election Day. You can use an Ohio driver's license, state ID, U.S. passport, passport card, military ID, ID or interim identification issued by the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. The ID does not need to have your current address on it. Another part of the new law requires the BMV to place the word non-citizen, that label, on driver's licenses and state IDs of those who lack citizenship but are in the country legally. Nazak Hapasha, who is the policy affairs manager of the League of Women Voters, told me they're working to get people prepared to vote in all elections. We are training people across the state to make sure that people are informed and educated on the new voting laws. And that's first and foremost, because no matter what we're voting on, when an election is, uh, we hit our like we hit the ground running um, this year. As soon as this bill was signed by the governor, really getting people from all over the state to be trained on educating Ohioans on making sure that they're eligible to vote. 
The debate is heating up about whether or not to hold a special August election. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine told 10TV he would sign a bill to create a special election in August if the state legislature passed it. If passed, there would be a special election this August on the ballot, an amendment that would raise the threshold for passing future constitutional changes from 50 percent to 60 percent of Ohio voters. That vote would come three months before Ohioans are expected to vote on abortion rights. Lawmakers talked about the bill on the House floor. It is so important that the voters have an opportunity to vote on raising the threshold to our Constitution to 60 percent as quickly as possible. These bills, House Bill 144 and Senate Bill 92, are specifically funding an August special election for the purpose of defeating a potential reproductive freedom initiative that could or could not be on the ballot this November. Just last year, the state legislature voted to eliminate most August special elections. This year's August election would cost $20 million. School district administrators say they are prioritizing mental health more than ever before. And this past week, legislation was introduced that would allow children to call off of school specifically for their mental health. State Representative Willis Blackshear Jr. of Dayton says three mental health days would be available as an excused absence. This is permissive, so it allows school districts to be able to excuse students, uh, whether it's for a whole day, a half day, and it can be in school or it can be uh, out of school. This legislation does not have bipartisan support. Franklin County commissioners met with leaders throughout the community for their state of the county. The event at Huntington Park reviewed many of the investments made last year to support a number of different areas in need of funding. Some of that work includes investments in child care, workforce development, and small businesses. Franklin County Commissioner Erica Crawley says another big focus for county commissioners this year also included affordable housing. We've worked with our community partners to put $50 million out on the street to uh, provide housing or to help our, our shelter centers, um, but also working with like the Affordable Housing Trust to get more developers and diverse developers into this space so they can build more units. And so you'll see this year and the years to come that we're just going to keep expanding on that work. And Franklin County leaders are also investing millions to help parents navigate the child care crisis. It's a problem we've been reporting on for months, and now commissioners say they want to do more to continue the investment into solutions for parents. 10TV's Carly Dion has more on where that money is already being used. Our child care workers are the workforce behind the workforce. It's no secret the pandemic has taken a toll on just about every industry, and the child care workforce is one of many still working to bounce back. According to a new report released today by the county, about 200 child care providers in Franklin County closed their doors in a two-year span. So if people don't have a place to put their children, then that means that they're leaving the workforce altogether, or they're going to have to take time off from work. Franklin County Commissioner Erica Crawley says they invest invested $23 million to start a new child care initiative known as Franklin County Rise. It benefits both families and providers. We know that our child care providers were worried about keeping their doors open and the lights on and water running. We had six incentives that are still available for our providers. The funding also supports families who make too much to qualify for publicly funded child care but still can't afford child care services. Health and Human Services Deputy County Administrator Joy Bevins says some of the other incentives cover a variety 
of working parents' needs. Whether it's in support of housing for workers, it's scholarships for equipment and curriculum. As well as money to incentivize workers and to invest in quality child care centers. Bevin says this funding in turn will get more parents back into the workforce, supporting the economy as a whole. A lot of centers need these dollars, families need these dollars, and we really want to make sure that they take advantage of utilizing these dollars. And that was 10TV's Carly Dion reporting. Commissioner Crawley says they plan to continue to invest in these child care efforts this year to continue to help that industry get back on track. More back and forth in the battle over gun rights in Columbus. A new ruling from a Delaware County judge blocks the city of Columbus from exercising new gun restrictions. It's a reversal on a Franklin County judge's ruling earlier this year that allowed the city to move forward with a plan two years in the making. Columbus leaders want to ban large capacity magazines and require gun owners to safely store their weapons. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost released a statement calling the ruling, quote, a step in the right direction. And then there was a statement from Columbus City Attorney Zach Klein, which says, in part, the city will continue to defend its ability to enact and enforce these and similar common sense gun safety reforms. We are getting a sense of how much Norfolk Southern will pay for that toxic train derailment in East Palestine. The company is attributing a nearly $400 million loss in profit. Norfolk Southern has committed nearly $31 million in compensation to the East Palestine committee, community, rather, still recovering from that. A former Cincinnati mayor, news anchor, and TV show host, you know him as Jerry Springer, passed away at his home in suburban Chicago after a battle with cancer. Springer was 79 years old. The Jerry Springer show was so popular, at one point, it topped the Oprah Winfrey show. Before Jerry Springer was a talk show host, he had a very different role as a political leader in the city of Cincinnati. At one point, he was the 56th mayor of the Queen City. Before that, he was elected to city council. But his time in politics did not come without controversy. In 1974, he was forced to resign over a controversy involving prostitution. Engaged in activities which at least to me are questionable. In later years, Springer had unsuccessful bids for the Democratic nomination for governor, as well as a seat in the U.S. Senate. Then, in the late 80s, he got into broadcast journalism and then talk shows with the debut of The Jerry Springer Show. The program actually struggled in its first few seasons. It then underwent a complete overhaul, and by the mid-1990s, that show was known for its chaos. After The Jerry Springer Show was canceled, Springer made numerous television appearances. At the end of his life, Springer was living at his home in Chicago. A family spokesperson says Springer had been diagnosed with cancer a few months ago. Till next time, take care of yourself and each other. His signature goodbye each night. Shockwaves sent through the airwaves. The face or faces of cable news, well, they're a changing. It was a very surprising day. I mean, you know, a lot of news was breaking between Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon. We're talking with a communications expert at The Ohio State University about what happened behind closed doors. Plus a helping hand from Central Ohio. We'll show you the conversation happening from Westerville to Ukraine. First, the race for the White House. The big topics you're going to see in 2024. 
Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Coming up in about 15 minutes, I'll talk with Alan Shaw, the CEO of Norfolk Southern, about the train derailment in East Palestine and train safety. Now back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. Third District Congresswoman Joyce Beatty and 15th District Congressman Mike Carey this week announced the relaunch of the Congressional Civility and Respect Caucus. Now, you may remember this was originally established by Congresswoman Beatty and former 15th District Congressman Steve Stivers. The goal is to encourage all members of Congress to act with civility and respect in their political discourse. Well, over the next year, Beatty and Carey will visit businesses and civic organizations across central Ohio. Their goal to promote the use of respectful dialogue on challenging issues. So we will watch what happens there. Now, the race for the White House is picking up steam. President Joe Biden formally announced that he plans to seek re-election. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America. And we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead we have more freedom or less freedom. More rights or fewer. The answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. Former President Donald Trump has already launched his campaign, and he's been posting videos online where he focused on homelessness and drug abuse. Our first consideration should be the rights and safety of the hardworking, law-abiding citizens who make our society function. When I'm back in the White House, we will use every tool, lever, and authority to get the homeless off our streets. We want to take care of them, but they have to be off our streets. There is nothing compassionate about letting these individuals live in filth and squalor rather than getting them the help that they need. We need professionals to help them. For a small fraction of what we spend upon Ukraine, We could take care of every homeless veteran in America. Our veterans are being treated horribly. Recent polling raises questions about the potential success of both of these candidates. This NBC News poll found most Americans do not think Donald Trump should run for president. NBC polling also found most Americans do not think President Biden should run for reelection. 10TV's Kevin Landers is joining Face the State this morning. And, Kevin, we're really glad you're joining us. You talked with a political analyst from Ohio State about this. I'm sure that person had a lot to say. Yeah, Professor Emeritus of Political Science Paul Beck was not surprised to see this announcement. I asked him what he thinks the big political issues will be on this election. What are, do you believe, the issues that both sides need to be hyper-focused on in order to uh, perhaps win uh, the White House in the 2024 election? Well, I think the big issue always is the state of the economy uh, and inflation being the the immediate problem. Unemployment is down, uh, but uh, there still is persistent inflation. It's come down considerably, but you can bet that the Republicans are going, Republican candidates are going to be on attack 
against Biden, assuming he is going to be the, the Democratic nominee, uh, over inflation. Now, what inflation looks like a year from now will really matter. And if it's way down, that won't be much of an issue. Uh, if it is still there and, and voters are still concerned about it, it obviously uh, will be a campaign issue. In terms of, you know, the economy, everyone takes credit for it when it's doing great, but no one takes credit for it when it's going, going bit down. Exactly, exactly. Well, I think the other thing to say is that, that presidents may really not have a lot of influence over the state of the economy. Now, abortion obviously is going to play a large issue in in this campaign. When you talk to analysts about either Democrats or Republicans, they seem to say that Republicans are a little bit are backing off of the extreme measures of the abortion issue Mm -hmm. um, because the reason is that Republicans understand that they need the independent voter, and that's what Trump needed for him to win elections. And I think that they want to make sure that they don't somehow ostracize the independent voter. Now, remember, Donald Trump supports abortion restrictions, but he also believes there should be exceptions for rape and incest. Mm -hmm. Um, But he hasn't talked a lot about abortion recently, and a lot of Republicans um, are beginning to try to find a balance between talking about it and not being too extreme so that they don't um, ostracize some other voters. So I think it's still unknown about Mm -hmm. how the abortion issue will play out in this election, but I think it's clearly going to be an issue for both candidates, whether Democrat or Republican, about how they couch what they say so they try to get as many voters as they can into their camp. And let's talk about the other thing that uh, analysts are saying. They think that President, former President Trump is in a better place now than he was in 2016. Can you talk a little bit about what role they think the indictment might play? I think that they don't believe that the indictment is going to hurt uh, Donald Trump. I think they believe that it actually um, energizes his base. Um, but I think that in terms of the indictment itself and whether or not that's going to hurt Donald Trump, I think if the, the indictments begin to stack up, mm-hmm. I think people will then start to gravitate to other candidates. DeSantis obviously would be the person most people would think about. Um, but I think that that's where it's a little bit unknown as to whether or not the indictment itself involving Stormy Daniels may not be as strong to some uh, Republicans as it would be for the other indictments that could come down as a result. So I think it's still a bit of an unknown, but I think that right now, I think Donald Trump is probably in a better spot than he was before because there are simply more candidates. And the more candidates in the field, the better it is for better him. Better for him. All right. And he won our state by eight point eight percentage points in 2022. How does that figure in terms of four years later? What's the mindset? Well, I think if you look at the political map of Ohio, you see it more red than blue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say that, that Donald Trump, if he were to be the nominee, would, would carry Ohio. Um, but I do think that Ohio is, is changing. And political, its political map, it's getting more red. And I think for, for Donald Trump and other Republicans, that, that bodes well for them. All right, Kevin, thanks for joining us yeah. today on Face the State. You're welcome. Well, we are going to certainly be seeing a lot of election on cable news in the coming year and a half. Two people we're not going to be seeing, Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon. In a surprise announcement, Fox News ousted Carlson and CNN terminated Lemon. We asked Ohio State journalism professor Nicole Kraft if she thinks the recent Fox News settlement with Dominion voting played a role in Carlson's departure. It was a very surprising day. I mean, you know, a lot of news was breaking between Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon. Um, I I don't think that was necessary. You know, I I actually uh, said earlier in the week that I thought that some head was going to roll. Um, I just didn't imagine it was going to be at at that high a level. I, I don't 
think certainly that this case was the deciding factor in Tucker Carlson's departure. Uh, there are many other things happening behind the scenes and, and, you know, some of it's come out in terms of the lawsuit that was filed uh, related to misogyny in the workplace and, um, you know, other, you know, negative factors that came potentially out of working on his staff. Um, so this seems to be something that may have been brewing for a longer period of time. The timing was certainly interesting. Uh, you know, as Brian Stelter uh, noted, the fact that he was not allowed to say goodbye to his audience in any way. I mean, that was a really bold and big statement by Fox to do that, um, that, that departure the way that they did. As for Don Lemon, he tweeted Monday afternoon that CNN never told him directly that he was being terminated. CNN's PR account said, quote, Don Lemon's statement about this morning's events is inaccurate. He was offered an opportunity to meet with management, but instead released a statement on Twitter. You know, it can sometimes feel like the war in Ukraine is half a world away, but folks right here in central Ohio are still reaching out to help however they can. We're going to take you to Westerville when we come back. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Between business life, social life, and her best bud, Loki, Beverly has a lot to focus on, especially while fighting Stargard, a blinding retinal disease. But she's not fighting alone. For 50 years, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has funded research into treatments and cures for blinding retinal diseases providing hope to people with vision loss. And for Beverly, winning the fight means focusing on what's closest to her. The Foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, we're winning. Help us end blinding diseases at fightingblindness.org. I'm a wife and the mother of two kids, and I've got a good job. Bye, Mom. See you, Mom. A pretty important job. Because of my family and my job, I really care about this neighborhood. It's a good neighborhood. Yes, there's some crime. And when I drive to work, like now, I realize that some people here don't trust the police. So the police should be reaching out to this community. And this community should reach out to the police. That's the way to make this a safer place. And when I get to work in the precinct house and put on my uniform, I can tell you as a police officer that this department is reaching out to the community. And the community is doing its part. We're building partnerships. This should be happening everywhere. This is how we can all be safer. Get involved. Start the conversation. Start the conversation and help stop crime. To learn the five things you can do, go to ncpc.org slash preventviolentcrime. A message from the National Crime Prevention Council and the Bureau of Justice Assistance. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. <laughs> This video from funeral services held in Ukraine, it really just highlights the human toll of the conflict there. And now people here in central Ohio are doing what they can to connect and help families in that war-torn country. 10TV's Amy Steigerwald takes us to the Westerville Rotary Club. Westerville Rotary Club has a strict start time for their meetings, especially one of their most recent ones, which was at 7.30 in the morning. But it was only about 3 in the afternoon in western Ukraine, which is when the Rivni Rotary Club meets. Despite being on opposite ends of the world, the two groups put their heads or computer screens together to figure out how they could help those who have been somewhat forgotten over the past year. This club has started numerous programs to help clothe, feed, house, even educate and basically give folks from eastern Ukraine 
bring a semblance. Local professor Megan Chwanski set up the meeting between the two clubs. Chwanski has family in Ukraine and knows people still living in the war-torn country. She says it can be discouraging to think about how normalized the violence has become. So for me and for others in the organization, we're just trying to do whatever we can to keep Ukraine on people's minds and know that there's a lot of need there for people who have been affected by the invasion. Really, the whole community of Westerville has always jumped in to try and find ways to help. Members are working to stay connected with those they spoke with and support them in any way they can. In Westerville, Amy Stuckerwald, 10TV News. It's all about books. Library Legislative Day was held last week at the Ohio State House. Hundreds of directors, officers, trustees, and supporters of our local libraries were there. They advocated for the importance of libraries. Governor Mike DeWine thanked librarians for all that they do for our communities. The Columbus Metropolitan Library recently celebrated a milestone with the installation of an historical marker at the new Martin Luther King Jr. branch on the Near East Side. The original building was the first public library branch in the country named after Dr. King. Growing up in this community, I remember warmth and nurturing. Nurturing from our teachers, nurturing first of all from our parents and our families. The feeling that people cared about you and wanted you to be successful. The libraries fit into that in a very major way because the libraries actually were catapulting you in a sense to learn outside of school, to actually dream for something bigger, to be a resource that was free. Any recognition for Martin Luther King or any recognition for the east side of Columbus, which has nurtured so many leaders in Columbus, excites me. I'm excited because he's really an example of what we can all strive for and should strive for. History doesn't stop. It continues. And what we've done today is we've reminded people about an important part of our past. Now let's go forth together and do great work together. I think a historical marker gives people information on their community, that their community matters, that they have recognition in the community. Martin Luther King's dream has far outlived him and will continue to and will inspire generations ahead of us that we will never see. Powerful. Thanks for joining us. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy with a preview of what's coming up this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Good morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. Coming up on Face the State today at 1130, Google is getting a boost from the Buckeye State. How two facilities in central Ohio will fuel the search engine. Some school levies passed, but some districts are going back to square one. We'll walk you through the vote in last week's primary special election. And that includes one critical mayor's race in our community. And now, mom or dad can be on diaper duty. The new spot's getting new changing stations in Columbus. We'll see you at 1130 for Face the State on 10 TV. Coming up next on Columbus Perspective, I'll talk with Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw. 
I'm John O'Hurley, and I support Paralyzed Veterans of America because our heroes have sacrificed so much for our independence. I had just come home. I had noticed my legs were swelling. Next thing I know, it was three weeks later. I was paralyzed. PVA has brought me back to life. While parachuting with my platoon, my parachute didn't open. It left me paralyzed. I just don't think my family would be as happy as they are without the support that I received from Paralyzed Veterans of America. For more than 75 years, Paralyzed Veterans of America has kept a promise to never leave a fallen hero behind. That's why Paralyzed Veterans of America is providing specialized medical care, life-changing treatments, benefits our heroes earned, the jobs they want, and the accessible vehicles and homes they need. Our Paralyzed Veterans have helped us live the lives we enjoy today. It's our turn to give them the best lives possible. To learn more, go to pva.org today. Mom's early Alzheimer's diagnosis was hard to take. And when I left the oven on, we decided together that it was time to see a doctor and make a plan. Early detection gave us more time to seek out information and support as a family. If you or your family are noticing changes, it could be Alzheimer's. Talk about seeing a doctor together. For more information, visit alz.org slash time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. All of Ohio has been watching what's been going on in East Palestine since a train derailment back in February. Some of the cars had hazardous material, and in order to prevent an explosion, chemicals were released and set on fire, creating a lot of concern in the community about the quality of air and water, which is still being monitored by the U.S. and state EPA. Train safety has become a major topic across the country. Joining me on the phone is Alan Shaw, CEO of Norfolk Southern. How are you? I'm well, Dave. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. I wanted to get a quick update from you about East Palestine. I understand that the south tracks have been cleaned up and the soil has been taken away, the contaminated soil, and you're working on the north side now? Yes, sir. You know, as from the beginning, Norfolk Southern has been really clear. Um, we're going to be guided by one principle. We're going to do whatever it takes to make it right in East Palestine. That means focusing on the environmental remediation. That means more than less with the community assistance. That means more than less on investing in the community and the surrounding areas to help them thrive over the long term. We're making a lot of progress each and every day, and I'm proud of our response and the progress we've made. We also understand we've got a lot more work to do. As you noted, uh, we're making progress on removing the contaminated soil. We've already removed over 36,000 tons of soil from the site. We've removed over 14 million gallons of water, and we've committed over $31 million in community assistance and investment. And that's that's just a start. That's just a down payment. What is uh, the situation, in, in your opinion, with your company's reputation in the town? Has it improved since the early days of this, or is that still a work in progress? What's going on? We're going we're gonna to be there a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, and, and we're going to make it right. And our actions are, are showing that. We're making promises, and we're keeping them. On, on any given day, we've got 
300 NS employees and contractors who are in, in East Palestine who are working on the environmental remediation, the community assistance, and the community investment. And, and Dave, you know, when they come home, um, what I find is they can't wait to get back to East Palestine. And I've, I've heard some of them have actually cut vacation short. And that tells me two things. That tells me that the NS team feels like they are making progress there and having a positive impact on the community. It also tells me that the community's given our, um, the NS team positive reinforcement. And over the longer term, we've got, we have 15 employees, NS employees, who call East Palestine home. Now, this is obviously, uh, you know, critical decisions that have to be made by a huge corporations such as North, Norfolk Southern. So is there concern going forward about setting precedent in what you do for a town like this should something like this or maybe something worse happen somewhere else? Um, Dave, my focus is on East Palestine. Uh, you know, I was there in the immediate aftermath, and I've been there back. I've been back there. Um, almost every week and you know what I see is a community that has a lot of pride a lot of pride in living in East Palestine a lot of pride in their neighbors and a lot of pride in their community Um, it's a special place Uh, I really enjoy going there and my focus is on upholding our commitment and my personal commitment to make it right. Monday will make seven months since there was a Norfolk Southern train derailment in Sandusky in northern Ohio, and from what I understand, it damaged an underpass and a retaining wall and, and a sewer in the area. That still has not been repaired. That underpass is still closed, and, and folks there, from what I understand, are still waiting for Norfolk Southern to do something about that. Yeah, um, I, I understand the situation you're speaking of. Um specifically because it's it's important to me and I can tell you that the NS team is working very closely with city officials on a weekly basis to provide funding for city contractors to repair the area but it seems like the folks there are wondering about their priorities like uh, you know because that happened before East Palestine and not you know not as extensive and yet they're still waiting well, we are, as I noted, we are working uh, directly with city officials to provide direct funding to city contractors to, to make the necessary repairs. Talking with Alan Shaw, he's the CEO of Norfolk Southern. It seems like th- these situations are really complicated because the NTSB said that there was no fault of anybody on the train at the time of that East Palestine derailment, that it was an equipment malfunction, apparently. So then you've got, if there's no fault, but there's liability and responsibility, it seems like the connections between those three issues are problematic with this sort of situation. You know, um, we got the preliminary results from the NTSB report, as you noted, and it said the NS crew was doing everything it was supposed to do, was operating the train below the speed limit. The wayside detectors were working as designed and there were no track defects and as you noted they're focused on a uh, the bearing of a of a private rail car car that no railroad owns a car that had been on three other railroads before it touched us we know that we still have to improve safety and so what this tells us is it's going to take an industry-wide effort to continue to improve safety in the rail industry um that means working with rail car owners and our customers and railroads themselves. And what you've seen from me is I have embraced the role to take an industry-leading 
professionals and our regulators really providing a lot of support for many of the elements that are in the current Vance Brown bill. And in fact, I had a very positive and constructive dialogue with Senator Brown just yesterday about this. During these hearings, though, there was a lot of instances where you continue to make that statement that you want to do uh, what's right for East Palestine. And a lot of lawmakers who are saying you're being vague about what being right means exactly. Yeah, what I can do is I can provide the resources of Norfolk Southern. And I let the citizens of East Palestine direct where those resources go. Um, they know their community. I'm going to provide the assistance. And we've been working with Governor DeWine's office and Attorney General Yost's office on setting up three long-term funds that I know are important to the, the citizens of East Palestine because I've heard it over many, many times from those, them as they're, they're concerned and genuinely so about long-term health care, about property valuations, and about water monitoring. And so under the direction of Attorney General Yost and with the support of Governor DeWine, we are at, we're working on those funds right now. And just a moment or so to go here, and I just wanted to ask, with all the trains and all the towns that these trains go through multiple times a day, it's inevitable that something like this is going to happen again. It's just a matter of when. How, how do you approach uh, that inevitability? You know, we're a safe railroad. Last year, the number of derailments um, on Norfolk Southern was the lowest in the last two decades, and the number of personal the personal injury rate on Norfolk Southern was the lowest in the last decade. And we can do better, and that's my goal: is we're going to continue to do better. We understand the role that we play in the U.S. economy, and we take safety very, very seriously. You know, just in the state of Ohio, we have over 2,000 NS employees who call Ohio home, and we serve over 1,500 businesses in Ohio that we call our customers. And last year, we handled over 450,000 carloads of their business, and we invested over $200 million in Ohio. We understand the importance of making decisions based on the long-term best interests of our customers and our employees and the communities that we serve. And in the area near the train derailment in East Palestine, do you see at some point the houses that are still in that area still being there or a park? I mean, what do you see being there 10 years from now? You know, the, the all the... The testing suggests that the air is safe and the water is safe to breathe, and we're we're investing in that community. Um, you know, we bought property in that community because we're going to be there for the long haul, and that we bought some property in downtown. That's where we're going to put our command center. Um, we're engaged with Mayor Conaway and Fire Chief Drabeck on additional um, investments in the community. We're we're going to be there for the long haul. Alan Shaw with Norfolk Southern. Anything else you'd like to add? Dave, we, we've made promises, and we're going to keep our promises. And each and every day, we're going to do the next right thing. And I'm going to see this thing through no matter what it takes and no matter how long it takes. Alan, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on today. Dave, it's my pleasure. Thank you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan.
Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective. <music>